Who wants to date? Anybody want to go on a date? Yeah, I'm sure all the singles are raising their hands, but parents, you should raise your hands as well. Never stop dating your spouse. All right? Uh, the wives are happy with me right now. This is a dating text. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world is this a dating text? There's nothing about dating in this text whatsoever. And by the way, I believe in courting only. You know, there's the courting only group out there. They're probably thinking, dating, what a heretic. Well, this is a courting text. Whatever you prefer, dating or courting. And what I mean by this, it's a story. The story begins with a young man. Ah, where's he going with this, pastor? Where are you going? It's a young man. Perhaps he's a good suitor. Verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Bekorath, son of all these sons. But he was a wealthy man, it says. He was a man of wealth. He, he, he came from a well-to-do family, and he was well-to-look at, might my, my, you, you could say as well. Verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. He was tall, right? Taller than any of his people, it says. Tall, dark. I mean, he's Jewish, so he's probably dark. And handsome, the most handsome, more handsome than any, tall, dark, and handsome, outwardly perfect. Saul's outwardly perfect. What's there not to like about Saul? Now, the question is, is the inside of Saul, who he is in his person, is it as attractive and well-to-do as the outside? Right, parents? We don't want just our children to date anyone. You shouldn't want to just date anyone. Yeah, they look good to the eye, but what about who they are inside? We don't want our children just to date anyone. We want our children to date godly men, a godly boy, godly men, and wise women. That's what we want for our children. That's what Israel needed for a king. Now, there is an interesting fact here with Saul. Saul is the only Israelite in all of Scripture who is noted for being tall. It's the only time in Scripture that an Israelite is noted for being tall. And also, interestingly enough, the only people, there are people noted for being tall in Scripture, but those people being noted for being tall in Scripture are always Israel's enemies. Think Goliath, right? Giant. Nephilim in the Old Testament or in Genesis. Giants, tall. Or think about the inhabitants of Israel at the time of the conquest when Caleb and the spies come and brought the news about the inhabitants of the land. They were fearsomely tall. And what's the point of this? I'm not talking, well, I'm, I am talking about tallness. The point, perhaps, being tall isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And I'm not talking about having bad backs. I mean, when you're tall, you tend to have bad backs. There's something about being tall. You don't want to be tall. Shorter people are always like, I want to be tall. Like, no, you don't want to be tall. <laughs> but I'm not talking bad backs. I'm talking dating. I mean, what is dating after all? Dating is all about finding the one. I'm finding the one. Is he the one? He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he's rich. And you date because you like the outside. Ooh, I like the outside. But then you date him to get to know the inside. You want to see if the inside matches the outside. 
And so you date. And as you date, you no doubt find what? Red flags. Oh, there's some, what are red flags? I talk about this with my singles often. Red flags. When you date, you're looking for red flags. Red flags are warnings. As you date someone, you find these warnings. You find out things about the person, and you have to ask yourself, can I live with these things? You date them, you begin to find out about You might find it, you might unearth some skeletons in the closet. Oh, there's skeletons in that closet. Do I, are, am I okay with these skeletons? Certain behaviors start to come out. Oh, I didn't know he was like that. Ideas, I didn't know she thought that way about that. You know, ideas, political ideas, theological, religious ideas, who their parents are, their hopes for the future. There's all kinds of things that can come out and expose those red flags to you. They're warnings. And what you have to ask yourself when you're dating someone is, knowing these facts about this person, am I willing to spend the rest of my life with them? And perhaps the answer is no. And you say, sayonara, it was good knowing you. You move on. Or you think, you know what? I can still see myself with this person. I can see myself marrying this person. Now, outwardly, Saul looks like the one. But inwardly, this chapter is full of red flags. That's what I call, name the, the sermon, red flags. This chapter is full of red flags. And we already know the answer. We know that Saul is not the one. Saul is not the king after God's own heart. He is a king like the nations. Remember last week, Israel demanded from Samuel, we want a king like the nations. We want a king like the world. And so Saul is a worldly king. And as a worldly king, there are lots of red flags. And it goes without saying, singles, do not date worldly people. This is from the Lord. Date Christians. That's God's word, actually. It's not my word. It's not wisdom. It's not good advice. Although it is wisdom and good advice, and I'm saying it, but it's actually God's word. Date Christians only, or I'll send you to Tim. Date Christians. And date just, not just any Christians, but date Christians who are sold out for Christ and sold out for his church. Now, that last phrase is most important because our, our world is getting rid of the church, it seems like, or seeing it not as important, but we want someone who loves Christ and his church. Those are good flags. But we're looking at red flags. Chapter 9, verse 3. Now, the donkeys of Kish, it says, Saul's father's was lost. So he, he, these donkeys are, are lost, and... He sent after them. Saul, you know, Kish sends his son, Saul. He goes after him, and he passes out through all these countries. And it says he does not find them. It, it repeats it twice, but he did not find them. He did not find them. Emphasis, he could not find them. Here's a red flag. Here's our first red flag. You don't want a leader who cannot lead at home. Here is a shepherd, small flock, and donkeys aren't really known for getting lost like sheep, but here's a shepherd who cannot even contain his own flock. They get lost, and he can't find them. How is someone who can't manage his own home going to manage a nation? And here's the first red flag. He's not a good shepherd. In verse 5, so he decides to turn back, and when he came to the land of Zuf, saw that his servant who was with him, he said, hey, let's go back home. 
My dad's going to get nervous. He's going to get anxious. We've been gone a long time. Let's go back home. But his servant said to him, the slave said, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All he says comes true. Let us go. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Here's a red flag. Saul wanted to turn back. It was a good idea. He didn't want to upset his father. But the slave wanted to seek divine help. The servant was like, let's get God to help. Now, that's a good flag. That's not a red flag at all. The servant wants to seek divine help, but it's a red flag, not Saul. Saul didn't think to seek the Lord. Saul didn't think to, he wasn't, he doesn't really seem to be spiritually minded as we're going to see in this text. The narrator goes out of his way to show that Saul is not someone who's really spiritually minded. Going back to my dating analogy, singles, you want someone who's spiritually minded. Husbands and wives need to be centered on God's word. And husbands, wives must expect their husbands to lead in the home, to lead with God's word, to lead in prayer. That's what wives should want. And that's what wives need in a man. And that's the kind of man you need to be. Red flag. Saul's not the guy. Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Saul assumes, or Saul assumed that spiritual favors had to be bought. He's assuming that spiritual favors had to be bought, which is the practice of pagans. This was the practice of those living in the land who were pagans. So Saul is thinking more like a pagan rather than a man of God himself. He's not really thinking according to Torah. He's thinking about the way of the nations, the way of the gods of the nations, and the way of the religion in the nations. This is a red flag. Singles, you want to find someone who loves Christ, his church, and loves God's word. You want to find someone who loves God's word more than anything else in this world, and that's one you want to hold on to. You find that gal and that girl, that's the one you bring home to daddy. But this ain't Saul. This ain't Saul. You don't want to bring Saul home to daddy. Now, the girls might think he's dreamy. Oh, he's so dreamy. Right? He's, a, he's tall. Oh, and he's the most handsome man in the land, and he's rich. Outwardly perfect, but inwardly, he's not the one. Verse 8, the servant answers Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it. And to the man of God who will tell us the way. Here's another red flag. Saul's ill-prepared for the journey. He's lost. He has no money. The slave has to pay the way. This is like girls when you go on a date. You know, you're on a date and you're eating. And the check comes and the, and the man goes, uh, you got this? <laughs> red flag. Maybe I'm just old-fashioned. That's, that's a red flag to my, my old-fashioned. But hey, you know what? They don't make things the way they used to be. I think old-fashioned is the best-fashioned, right? Uh, old guys rock. Uh, I don't have that in my sermon notes, but it just came to me. Uh, this is a red flag. And Saul said to his servant, well, come, let us go, because they got the money. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And this is all a red flag. And what really the narrator is doing in this text is he's making it clear that Saul didn't even know the most important person in all of Israel. 
I mean, we've been, we've been going through this text, and we've seen in the last two chapters that Samuel's the most important person this time in Israel. The text has been very clear that Samuel was bringing the word of the Lord to all Israel. And Samuel had the only word of the Lord. If you wanted the word of the Lord, you went to Samuel. And the text twice in the past says all of Israel went to Samuel for the word of the Lord. But not apparently Saul. He doesn't seem to know who Samuel is. The servant knows. The slave knows, but not Saul. And so the picture we're beginning to see of Saul is is someone who's very spiritually inept. The narrator is going out of his way to paint a very poor picture of Saul. Yes, he said he's the most good-looking person in the land. I mean, the text starts out, he's tall, he's dark, and he's handsome, the most handsome, and he's rich. And you're thinking, oh, this is a good king. But as the narrator unfolds the story, you begin to see subtly these red flags. Good-looking. And not a very flattering picture of the inside. And who we are matters more than what we are. And besides this unflattering picture of Saul, the narrator also highlights God's good providence, beginning verse 11. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water, and he said to them, is the seer here? And it just so happens they knew. They actually know a lot. It's very interesting how much they know about Samuel. They answer, yeah, he, yeah he's here, just ahead of you. Hurry. And they know everything about him. He's just coming to town. He's just coming to the city because the people have a sacrifice today and at the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you'll find him. It's like they know. It's like there's providence here. Go up to the high place for people will not eat. You know, they know all this stuff. He's got to come. He's coming to bless. Now go. You will meet him. If you go right now, you're going to see him immediately. And just as they, just as they predicted, verse 15, the day before Saul came, or they went up and There was Samuel. It worked, and it happened just as they said. But if you know the Bible, things just don't happen by happenstance. Nothing just happens in God's world. Everything in God's world happens because God has decreed it. Everything happens as God decrees. We see verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Now we're getting the backstory of this providence. He says, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And notice the text, God says, I will send him. And through Saul's foolish, aimlessly wandering in ineptitude and so forth, it's still God working. I will send. I'm sending a man. Here it is, God working all things together for the good of Israel. To send a man, he says, you must anoint him. He will be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. God is in control, using Saul, red flags and all, to save his people. God was working all this time, even through the ineptitude of Saul, Red flags are nothing for God's providence. In fact, God moves all creatures, big and small, weak and strong. Red flags, sin and all. God's at work. And no man can stand against God's will. No man can stand against God's decree. And we should find rest there in that omnipotent, sovereign hand of God. We should find rest in a sovereign who loves us and cares for us in such intimate ways and moves heaven and earth for our good. 
We should recognize that darkness is not dark to God. And we face much darkness, but the darkness is not dark to God. And the night is as bright as day. So no matter the darkness that you are dwelling in, the darkness that you are feeling, know that God sees you. He knows the way. We may be anxious. We may find anxiousness. But find rest in that anxiousness in God's sovereignty and his care and his hand upon you, even using the darkness for your good. God's never lost. And here he's caring for his people. He will save them. Now juxtaposed to Saul's spiritual ineptness is Samuel, who knows from the Lord everything about Saul. He even knows his future. You will be king. You will deliver my people. Now we've seen this people. We've seen exactly what God has seen when he's talking about Saul. And as we see Saul, we see all these red flags. But the Lord chooses him. And we've seen Israel. And as we've been studying Israel, and as we study Israel in the future, lots of red flags with Israel. We've seen Israel already. We've seen their sin and misery. Their sin, look at their sin, chapter 8, verse 7 through 8. Here just recently, chapter 8. Verses 7 and 8, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they, that is Israel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. They have rejected me from being their king. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. This is what God sees when he looks at Israel. He sees their sin, their sin's idolatry. And then we see their misery. Verse 18. And in that day you will cry out to me, he says, because you forsake me, your sin. And in that day you will cry out to me in your sin, because you're king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you that day. There is no greater misery than knowing that God will not hear your cries. Can you think of anything more miserable than knowing that God won't answer you when you cry out to God in prayer? Can you think of more, anything more miserable than knowing that God will not hear you, that God will not provide, God will not protect because of your sin and your misery? That's what God has seen. That's what we have seen. Yet here we see God delivers his people. This is grace. This is the sermon. We sin and continue to struggle with sin, and God doesn't cease to love us. Yahweh heard their cries for idolatry. Yahweh heard their cries for idolatry, their longings for sin, and he's also heard their cries of deliverance, and he's answered them. And this is Israel's story. Israel will continue to be stubborn throughout the whole Old Testament. They will continue to seek other gods. They will continue to forsake God. They will continue continue in their idolatry, continue in their sin and misery, and God will continue to love and care for them. They will continue to forsake God, but God will never forsake his people. And this is our story. This is your story. No matter your sin, and it's no excuse to go on sinning, that grace may abound. No excuse to go on sinning that grace may abound, but when you sin, grace abounds. 
You see, the more you sin, the more opportunity you give God to be merciful. The more you sin against God, the more he is going to love you in Christ. The more opportunities you are giving the blood of Christ to wipe away and be glorified for forgiving you all your sins. It's no excuse to go on sinning that grace may abound, but grace abounds furthermore and always. You see, God will not deny grace to those whom he has called. For those whom he has justified, he will glorify. Grace is a sermon. But we're not at the end, so we've got to keep going. Verse 17. And Samuel saw Saul. The Lord told him, here's the man. Here he is. Again, Saul we've seen is clueless, but Samuel seems to know everything. Here's the one I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel said, Here I am. It's me. And then we really see how Samuel knows everything about him. He says, Hey, your donkeys have been found. Don't worry. You're going to come eat. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Verse 20. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Don't you deserve the very best? That's what he's really saying here. And here's Saul's answer, verse 21. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Israel? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Now we might be thinking, this isn't a red flag. We love this humility. But there's something going on behind this text. When Saul answers, am I not a Benjamin from the least of the tribes of Israel? What does that mean from the least of the tribes of Israel? And when he says, is not my clan the humblest? What does he mean there? He's not being humble. The word humblest could also be translated despised. He could be saying, and is not my clan the most despised of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why would Benjamin be the most despised clans in the tribe of Israel or in the nation of Israel? Because in the not-so-distant past in Judges 20, and you can read about this on your own after church, Judges 20. And I'm not going to go there because it's rated highly M for mature. But Benjamin did something so gross and such gross immorality, something so wicked that the entire nation of Israel went to Benjamin to put the entire clan to death. They were going to destroy the entire tribe, infracticide, right? When he's saying that we're the most humblest, he's saying we're the most despisers. And here's the point. The Jewish girls weren't lining up to take a Benjamite boy home to meet father. He may be rich, he may be beautiful, but he comes from a very poor tribe, very spiritually poor. Red flags. Nevertheless, the chapter ends with Samuel honoring Saul by placing him at the head of the table, giving him the choicest portion of food, giving him the best place to sleep at night, and then anointing him as king, verse 27. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, 
Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop there and stay for a while, Then I make that I may make known to you the word of the Lord. And this word of the Lord took place as anointing. Verse 10, chapter 10, when Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him, and that oil represents, in Scripture, the oil represents that God's now working and God's owning, and this is God's man. This is God's man. God's, this oil is Yahweh's way of making a claim on Saul, a claim that he would be king. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people of Israel? And he's anointed him to reign over the prince of the people of Israel. He's king, and not only king, he will be a deliverer and save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this will come with a sign, and this shall be the sign to you. And the Lord has given these signs. I'm not going to read them here, but the signs of the way that he should go. And the signs culminate in verse 6 with the anointing of the Spirit. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And the Spirit comes upon Saul. He becomes another man. What kind of man does he become? He becomes a man who will follow the Lord. It says, verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And with that heart, he followed God's word. It says, verse 13, he went to the high place. Samuel called and told him to go to the high place. He has changed into another man. He's obedient. He was a man who would now serve the Lord. Now, many latch on to the supernatural power in this text, and they make much of it. Because there's a lot of supernatural and there's power happening here. And many latch on this and make much of the power that's happening, and so should we. We should make much of the power of God. The power of God, always we know in Scripture, always leads to salvation. So we should make very much of that. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We should make much of the power of God. The power of God leads to obedience to God's word. We see verse 7, now when these things meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. God was with him to save his people. Verse 8, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. God was with him to deliver his people. God was with him, the Spirit was with him to obey God's word and to deliver God's people. To deliver God's people by obeying God's word. That is, God's power and God's word are never separated. The Holy Spirit and God's word work together. You never separate the Spirit and the word. The word and the Spirit always work together. The power of God is the power of his word. And if you want the power of God, then you need the power of his word. We cannot make do and make much of God's power without making much of God's word. And that word should always lead us to Christ. Because if you make much of the word, you're going to make much of Christ. But you can make much of power and not have Christ. You can make much of God's power and Christ still say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. That is because the power of God should lead us to gospel. The supernatural works of God should lead us to Christ. And we want the word and we want the spirit. This is why Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And the Holy Spirit leads to truth. And he always leads to truth. 
And so God worked and saw that he might obey his word, and he did. As I said before, he follows along, and he becomes a prophet himself, it says, and the Spirit comes upon him, and he's, and he's prophesying, and a man in the place answered, Who's his father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. I like the guy, you know, who's his father? <laughs> Basically, that guy is in the audience going, who's this guy? Who's this guy? He's, like, he's got this power, but we've got to test the source of his power. Who's his daddy? That is, does he come from a clan of prophets? Does he come from a, no, he's red flags. He's Saul. This man's basically saying, hey, test the prophets. Yet here's a familiar biblical norm. God often, God often defies human expectations, doesn't he? He often uses the most unlikely people of all, red flags and all. And so the story ends with more red flags. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him, he gets home, right? He's back home. His uncle's like, where you been? He's like, hey, the donkeys are back, but where were you? The donkeys returned, but we couldn't find you. And Saul said, we went to Samuel. And then I love Saul's uncle. He knows who Samuel is. Oh, what did Samuel say? He knows who Samuel Samuel does. Saul doesn't seem to know who Samuel is, but the uncle knows. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, notice this, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Red flag. He's not forth telling. He tells partly truth, but not the whole truth. And the most important truth, the matter of the kingdom. That's the most important thing that's happened. You see, this text shows us, in this text, there's been lots of searching. The actual verb to find, I think, is used something like 13 or 14 times in this text. To find, to find, to find. Lots of searching in this text. And lots of things were found. And most importantly, the kingdom of God was found. But hardly anybody knows it. Saul doesn't share it with anyone. God was working, but only few saw it. And that's the problem with earthly kings, red flags and all. They're not fit for the kingdom of heaven, for it is a kingdom not of this world. And this text with Saul opens up the way for a king of kings, who is a king of a kingdom not of this world. Yet Christ, unlike Saul, doesn't withhold knowledge, but he proclaims from the rooftop, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You see, Christ is the anti-Saul of this text. He's the anti-Saul. Unlike Saul, he was not outwardly perfect, right? Saul's tall, dark, and handsome. Isaiah says, Jesus 53, Isaiah 53 says, for Jesus grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Not much to look at outwardly was Jesus. But inwardly, Jesus was the true and righteous man. And unlike Saul, Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus doesn't lose his sheep, not easily, right? Because he knows his sheep, his sheep know his voice, they listen to him. But every once in a while, a sheep gets lost, right? And what does Jesus do when one sheep is lost? He leaves the 99 
And he goes and finds the one. And he always finds the one. And he rescues the one. And he brings the back one. You see that Jesus will go after you when you weigh, when you're wayward. Jesus will go after you in your sins and your struggles as if you're the only one in the world. And he loves you as if you're the only one, like there's no other. That's the good shepherd. And like Saul, Jesus was anointed. Saul was anointed, Jesus was anointed. And Jesus was anointed at his baptism. And like Saul, he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. He said, I have kept all your word. And Jesus says, I have shared it with those you have given me. And Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word, faith comes by hearing, we are taking part of that kingdom now. And we are becoming members of the kingdom of God, taken into the kingdom despite our sins and misery. But grace upon grace, we are his own. We are the bride of Christ who is our prince. He is king of kings who saved us from our enemies. He has saved us from sin. He has saved us from death. And he now reigns over all God's people. And we lose nothing who gain Christ. We lose nothing who gain Christ. For he is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords, and he is our Savior, our Deliverer. And now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, be glory now and forevermore. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.